monsters are most dangerous and most real? The Monsters Within. This week, we look at the monster of... Wrath. All right, good morning, Willow. How's everybody doing today? It's great to have those of you here. Also want to welcome those of you joining us at one of our Willow locations. Big shout out to our friends in Huntley and Crystal Lake, South Lake, North Shore, Chicago, Wheaton. We're all part of the Willow family together, so great to have each and every one of you here. As we continue this series we've been in for the last few weeks that we're calling The Monsters Within. It's taking a look at those historical sins that the church has referred to as the seven deadly sins. And again, as we look at these sins, what we're recognizing is this is that you and I have an enemy who wants to steal every good thing that God wants to give to us. And so if we can understand his tactics, we can better understand how to lean into the wisdom of God and the power of God so that we can overcome these things and embrace the good things that God has in store for us. And today we're going to talk about the seven deadly sin that is called wrath. And here's what immediately came into mind for me. How many of you had a moment somewhere in your life that you got into a prank war with somebody else? Has that ever happened to you? Okay, like a couple of you. you you've experienced it. Somebody pranked you. You wanted to get them back. And so typically when it comes to a, a prank, the thing that never happens is this. Is when you get pranked, somebody goes, ah, oh, good one. And then it just stops right there, Right? Because usually when something happens to you in that way, you're like, oh, that was good. But you just wait because this is about to come your way. And so we kind of want to get somebody back. It reminds me of when I was in, in college. There were these two guys that got in the prank war with one another. It started off pretty funny. Uh, back in the, the time when I was in college, we had those big boombox stereo systems. Do you remember those? And there was no such thing as like wireless headphones. Everything was hardwired in. And so uh, a buddy of mine got some incredibly long speaker wire. And he connected it to his speaker system, ran it out the window next door and in the guy's window that that lived next door to him and hooked his speaker, his stereo system through the wire to the other guy's speakers. And so that way, through the stereo system in his room, he can control what happened in the other guy's room. Now, he didn't just kind of let him know that, that it was happening. He waited until about three in the morning when he decided to blast some, like, death metal music at, like, volume 10 in the middle of the night. Now, as you can imagine, this guy woke up completely startled, kind of freaked out about the whole thing. He hit every button on his stereo system, but it didn't control anything. It just got louder. It just got worse. He didn't know what to do. He finally came to the conclusion that his stereo system was demon-possessed because there is no other explanation, right? And eventually, you know, the guy came in and was laughing and having a good time. They eventually laughed about the whole thing, but that was the start of a prank war. And really, over the course of the next few weeks, and maybe even last in a couple months, one guy would, would take all of the white clothes from one of the guy and wash it with a red towel to return everything pink. He looked good in pink. Then the other guy would take, uh, would go to the store and, and buy a bunch of toothbrushes, take all the bristles out and put the bristles in the guy's bed because you can never get all of the bristles out of the sheets. And it just continued to escalate. It was around Easter time. And so one guy went and bought about 30 of those little baby chickens and put them all over the guy's room because little chickens leave little chicken droplings behind every single you know, place that those are in the room. And that kind of made this guy mad. And so he went to the store and again, it was around Easter and he bought all that you know the, the, the grass that they put in Easter baskets? 
And he bought as much as he could find at as many stores as he could go to. And he took that Easter basket grass and he filled the guy's room in Easter basket grass. But then it came to the showstopper. The showstopper was one of the guys worked on the maintenance crew for the college that we attended. Uh, He was on the lawn mowing team. And he saved all the grass clippings from mowing lawns. And he waited to one unsuspecting uh, spring day, and he took those grass clippings, and he poured them through the sunroof of the guy's car, filling it to the brim. You're feeling it too. It wasn't right, right? Well, that's what sometimes happens when it comes to prank wars, that something that starts out fun and innocent just escalates. It escalates pretty quickly. It doesn't just happen in prank wars. It happens sometimes in our lives. That something happens to us, And our immediate gut response is to want to get somebody back in some way. And many times we don't just return it eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. We like to take it up just one notch. And so in order to have this very important conversation about wrath, I want to take us to a story in the very first book of the Bible. We're going to be in the book of Genesis. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 4. Or if you'd like to use a, a device, you can get on the YouVersion Bible app, look up Genesis chapter 4, or the words will, will show up on the screen as well. Now, Genesis chapter 4, we meet these two brothers, Cain and Abel. They're the first recorded siblings we know in all of human history. They're the, the sons of Adam and Eve. And so it's kind of interesting that sibling rivalry started at the very, very beginning. Here's their story. Genesis chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 2. It says this. It says, when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord, and Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. And so you have these two brothers. One became a farmer, the other became a shepherd. They both brought gifts and offerings to God. One of those offerings was accepted by God. The other offering was rejected by God. Now, we don't know 100% why God rejected one of the offerings. Most scholars would suggest that God had given specific instruction about what these offerings were supposed to be. And so one of the brothers was actually obedient. The other brother was disobedient. That would make some sense. But nevertheless, Cain and his offering were rejected. And and because he was rejected, these emotions immediately filled Cain's heart. Uh, Emotions of jealousy. Emotions of insecurity, competition, anger. I mean, it was, it was all welling up in Cain's heart. It's the first piece that we begin to understand about wrath. Here's the first truth. Wrath begins with rejection. It's where it all starts. Wrath begins with rejection. Now, now what's interesting about this is that all of us probably have some story in life that we experience rejection, at least to some degree. Now, now maybe we can kind of go back to our childhood, and we remember the moments that we were bullied by somebody because of how we looked or not really fitting in, and we experienced rejection at a young age. Uh, Maybe it was because of the words of a teacher or a counselor or a principal or somebody who looked at us and said that you're not not good enough, You're you're not measuring up. Uh, You're never going to make it. And we we experience the sting as it were related to those words. 
Or maybe for some of us, we experienced rejection in our homes growing up. We, we grew up in a, in a home with an alcoholic parent, and, and we experienced the rejection and betrayal that gets associated with, with that parent's absence. Or maybe we grew up in an inconsistent household that we didn't know if our parent was going to slug us or hug us at any moment that we, that we experienced, right? We experienced rejection in all forms and fashions. For some of us, it was much later in life. We experienced rejection at the hands of an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or ex-spouse in some way, the person who was supposed to love us the most, wounded us deepest. My guess is we all have a version of that story. We all have a moment in our life that we experience rejection to some degree. I remember for me, I was in eighth grade. I was, I was in the, the eighth grade band. I was a saxophone player in a really lousy one. And I remember uh, being in my eighth grade band class. My band director, his name was Mr. Kathy. Mr. Kathy didn't really like me. And the feeling was mutual. I didn't really like him either. And candidly speaking, I was not a good student in this class. I was, I was always like out of line, talking out of turn, probably talking back to him. I was very far from your model student. But at the end of the year, you get those yearbooks. And if you remember, if you did this as your kid, you took those yearbooks and you had other students and teachers sign your yearbook at the end of the day. And I gave my yearbook to Mr. Kathy to have Mr. Kathy sign my yearbook. And here's what he wrote. Sean, you're the most obnoxious student I have ever had. And he signed his name. Now the reality of it is, that may have been true. But I still remember it 30 years later. Isn't that fascinating? Like, I don't remember anything anybody else ever wrote in a yearbook. I probably, if I were to go back and look at it, I don't remember people's names. Why do I remember that? I mean, it's not like I hold a grudge against the old codger or anything, but (laughs) nevertheless, that stuff, like, it sticks with us, doesn't it? It has, has this kind of sticking pattern to us. Because wrath actually begins with rejection that we've all experienced somewhere in life. And so into that reality, God's word speaks some very powerful truths, very powerful caution. We lean into it in the book of Hebrews. Here's what the book of of Hebrews says. He says, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you. Did you see what it called bitterness? Bible calls it a poisonous root Because that's oftentimes what bitterness tries to do. It tries to take root in our heart. It tries to set up camp. It kind of wants to call the shots and kind of always be there. That even if something happened 30 years ago or something happened multiple years ago, the impact and the effects of that are still alive and well today because when bitterness takes root, there's this undercurrent of anger that's always there. And so when something happens today, I might fly off the handle, not because that situation demanded that I fly off the handle, because this anger is always brewing inside of me. I I feel like when it comes to to anger and bitterness, there's really a couple of types of people. There there are people that I would call stewers and people that I would call spewers. Now, when it comes to spewers, spewers are people that like to express their anger, uh, you, you know maybe a couple of spewers in your life. Maybe you look in the mirror at a spewer in your life, right? 
And these are the people that like to express their anger, express their emotion. You know, sometimes it, it, it goes, you know, through a harsh word that's spoken. Sometimes it's through raising your voice. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's lashing out against something. Again, it's the expression of the anger. Uh, spears are more easily to spot when it comes to this bitter root that sometimes can exist in their life. But even if I don't do that, doesn't mean I don't have a bitter root. Because I think there's another type of person. There's the spewers, but there's the stewers. Now, I'm definitely more of a stewer. And what I mean by that is, is, is oftentimes I don't fly off the handle necessarily, but oh, baby, I'll, I'll stew on it. And I'll, I'll stew on it sometimes, you know, for, for a long time. And, and what's interesting is I'll even play out whole full-fledged, knock-down, drag-out arguments in the theater of my mind. You with me? And so somebody walks in the room, and I'm like angry. They're like, what did I do? I'm like, I've just like won an argument with you in my mind. Now, what's interesting about stewers is stewers, they don't express their anger. They suppress their anger, and it can destroy them from the inside out. And frankly, it eventually does come out. That even those who are stewers eventually become spewers when they can't bottle it up anymore. I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of like grenade that there's either like an explosion or an implosion, but it's all kind of there within. And so the Bible warns us about this bitter root. And don't let bitterness take root. It's a poisonous, poisonous root in our lives. And we have to recognize that the pain that is there. Now here's possibly the most important thing that I'll say. If you forget everything else I say, don't forget this. The truth is this. If you don't allow God to transform your pain, you will inevitably transfer your pain to someone else. If you don't allow God to transform your pain, whether we like it or not, inevitably at some point in the journey, we will transfer our pain to someone else. So a couple of things here that are really important. If I find myself reacting disproportionately to whatever situation I find myself in, like I'm flying off the handle by something that this moment in of itself is maybe not that big of a deal, it's a great indication I've got some untransformed pain in my life. And if I don't deal with that pain, if I don't allow God to transform that pain, it will continue to come out over and over and over again until I deal with the core of the root that's going on in my life. But it also gives me compassion for those who sometimes fly off the handle at me. Uh, there have been moments that I've been on the receiving end of a, of a spewing type of moment. And although it hurts, and although it's wounding, and although it's not okay and not excusable behavior, I oftentimes find myself recognizing that the, that the venom that's headed my direction has actually very little to do with me. And I can actually have some compassion on somebody because I recognize that there's a greater work that God needs to do in somebody's journey. The truth is, if we don't allow God to transform our pain, we'll inevitably transfer it to someone else. And so it all starts here. Because we recognize the second principle about wrath. Wrath, it, it begins with rejection, but, but wrath wants to retaliate. I mean, wrath is like licking its chops. It, it wants to retaliate. It, it wants to kind of get somebody back for the wound that they have, have caused us. 
if you kind of take it back to, um, if you take it back to the, the story, here, here's what it says. Uh, uh, God intervenes and he talks to Cain. He says, Cain, wh- why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why, why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. You see what's going on like in Cain's life, that those, those emotions that he's feeling because of the rejection, they're just well, welling up inside of him. God intervenes. God's trying to talk Cain off the ledge because he's just, he's stewing, he's brewing. It's about to uh, be spewing, right? That, that's, that's, where, that's where Cain is at. It, it kind of reminds me, I, I read an article about a business that was started in the late 80s that was called Revenge a la Carte. That if you were angry with somebody and you wanted to get back at somebody, you could actually hire this company to get back at them on your behalf. So for example, you could pay them 180 bucks. They would deliver a coffin to the person with a note attached to it that says, I wish you were here. Or if you don't want to spend $180, you could just send them a, a bouquet of dead flowers. Or you can spend 20 bucks to get their, their name and number added to every great telemarketing list out there, Right? Now, I don't know if this company is still in business or not, but you kind of get the sense from Cain. He's ready to dial a little revenge a la carte. God tries to intervene, and he says these words, you must subdue it or it will control you. In other words, he's saying you got to control it or it will control you. Cain, you got to get a hold on this because wrath wants to take revenge. But don't take revenge. You've got to learn to release instead of revenge. And so that's why consistently all throughout Scripture, God does it in this moment, but God does it throughout Scripture, He continues to remind His people that revenge is His, it is not ours. That revenge only really belongs to God. So one of those those moments is in the book of Proverbs, chapter 20. It says this, uh, this is God talking. He says, don't take it on yourself to repay a wrong. Trust the Lord, and He will make it right. And so it's really this reminder that revenge ultimately is God's and it's God's alone. And here's why. It's not as though that the wrong goes unaddressed. It's not if there was something that was unjust, it just needs to be turned a blind eye to. It's just the reality of if we respond with revenge toward an injustice, we will likely create a second injustice. Will likely add to what was already a problem and make it a more significant problem. And God says, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to repay evil for evil. I actually want you to repay evil for good. And trust me that I will take that wrong and I will make it right. Would you release it? And would you ultimately release it to me? You know, one of the more comical examples I find in scripture of somebody who was really trying to release this to God, somebody who understood this principle is King David. Uh, He was known in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. But if you know David's story, you know there are moments that he had tremendous enemies, tremendous adversaries that were after him. And David wants everything in him to release it to God and let God be the one who takes out revenge on his behalf. And here's what's recorded for us in the book of Psalms 109. This is off the pen of David. Uh, uh, I love the Psalms because they're very real. They're very raw. Here's what David writes. He says, Oh God, whom I praise, 
do not remain silent. Wicked and deceitful men, they've opened their mouths against me and, and have spoken against me. With lying tongues, with words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause, but I, but I am a man of prayer. You see what he's doing? God, you're great. God, I'm a man of prayer. And because I'm a man of prayer, I'm going to give it all to you. But God, let me give you a couple suggestions of what I think you should do. He says, appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand when he's tried. Let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May his children be fatherless. May his wife a widow. And may his children be wandering beggars. As they, and may they be driven from their ruined homes. And may a creditor seize all that he has. And may strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. Aren't you glad that David is a man of prayer? But you can kind of feel it in him, right? He's like, God, I'm going I'm to give it over to you. But God, I need you to get even on my behalf. And really, there's a sense like in all of us that when we see and experience an injustice, we know that wrong needs to be made right. We're just lousy in doing it ourselves. And that's why God says, just trust me. I will make every wrong right. I need you to release it. Don't create another injustice. I need you to trust me to release it. What's true is this. What's true is this. The third principle is this, that that wrath that begins with rejection. Wrath wants to retaliate, but God doesn't want to leave us there. I think with each one of these seven deadly sins, God actually gives us a, a spiritual antidote. And that is this, that love compels us to release it. That we're not kind of left to our own devices, but love compels us to ultimately release it. That God desires for us to experience something good. Doesn't want the enemy to to rob things from us, but but instead God wants to, to give us life. And so love compels us to release. Now, unfortunately, Cain didn't get the memo. Or if he did get the memo, he didn't apply the memo because his story has a very tragic ending. Here's what it says, Genesis chapter 4. It says, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? And so Cain did not have the ability to release it. That, that bitter root tore him from the inside out. He ultimately takes the life of his brother. Maybe we hear that and we go, well, I wouldn't do that. I mean, sure, that person's wounded me, but I would, I, would never, I would never take their life. And that may be true. We may have no intention to ever kill somebody physically, but sometimes we do want to kill their reputation. We want to kill their joy. We're going to kill any good thing that happens in their life. And God says, I want you to release that. Love compels us to release it. Now, how do I begin to release it? Again, I talked about a spiritual antidote earlier. And here's the spiritual antidote that Scripture gives us as it relates to wrath. God gives us the opportunity to extend forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
Forgiveness isn't easy. Because forgiveness requires the person who was offended to release. In many ways, that's one aspect of forgiveness, is though I have every right to repay you for what you've done for me, forgiveness compels me to say, I choose not to. I choose to release it and allow God to do whatever God will do. And so that's part of forgiveness, is I choose to release. And so that every time somebody that I am kind of in conflict with, or, or that I want to respond to negatively, that I will choose to release. And it's not a one-time decision. It's a decision we have to make over and over and over and over again. I, 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 I choose to release the right to roll my eyes again. I choose to release the right to, to snub my nose up at them. I choose to release the, the, the desire that I have to repair some sort of harsh word or say something harshly to them. I make the decision to release. That's part of what forgiveness is. But it's not all of forgiveness. You see, forgiveness truly is based not just on what we're capable of doing. I'm actually convinced that forgiveness is not possible on our own. Because forgiveness is actually based on who he is and what he has done. You know the whole phrase around forgiveness that sometimes people will tell you you're supposed to forgive and Help me out again. Forgive and? I don't even think that's possible. Do you? I mean, it sounds so good. They both start with F. It's a nice alliteration, but I don't really think it's possible. I don't know if it's possible to forgive and forget. I don't think it's possible to not remember those types of things. But I think I might argue that the better posturing is not forgive and forget, but the better posturing is actually this, to forgive and remember. Not remember what the person's done, but it's actually this, to remember who he is and remember what he has done. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, Romans chapter 8, maybe it's somewhat familiar to you, verse 28, it says this about God. It says, in all things, God works for the good of those that love him. In all things. In all things, God is up to good. That doesn't mean that God orchestrated that horrible thing that you experienced. That doesn't mean that God desired for you to experience rejection, but it does mean that in all things, including that thing, God is able to work good. That's an amazing thing about who, he, who God is. I remember years ago, I was, I was listening to a Christian radio station, and somebody called in, and they shared with the, the radio host this horrific thing that they'd experienced in life. And then the, the, the woman asked, she says, what kind of God would allow that to happen? It's a very honest question. I'll never forget the response of the radio host. He said, I don't know if you're able to hear this or if you're ready to hear this. But it's the kind of God who can bring good out of evil. It's a kind of God who can bring beauty out of pain. It's the kind of God who can bring life even from death. That's who he is. And so part of forgiveness is letting go my right to respond to the person. But part of forgiveness is trusting that God can even use this scenario to bring about good in my life. That God could even use the most horrific circumstance to shape me, to mold me, to grow me, 
to draw me closer to himself. That in all things, God can work for good. Forgive and remember. But that's not the only thing I remember. You see, I also remember what God has already done for me. You see, forgiveness doesn't start with me. It never has. Ephesians chapter 4 reminds us, be kind and compassionate toward one another. Here's what he says. Forgiving one another just as in Christ God has forgiven you. The two most important words there, just as. You see, we forgive because we're forgiven. If you want to become more forgiving, you can only become more forgiving the more and more you embrace the reality that you are forgiven. It all starts with him. Because the truth is, my life and in your life, because of our sin, we have in fact rejected God. He was the one experienced rejection because of our decision, because of our sin. But here's the truth. Though God was rejected because of our sin, God could have retaliated. God could have poured his wrath out on your life and on my life. But God chose to withhold his wrath from us Instead of sending his son Jesus to this world, Jesus endured that on our behalf so that you and I could be set free. The reality is, the very moment that God should have punished my life, God extended forgiveness to my life. So whenever I'm in a situation where I feel like somebody's wounded me, that, God, that, that, that somebody has rejected me, what, what I'm compelled to do is to not forgive and forget, but to forgive and remember to remember a God who released me from my sin, who gave me undeserved love, undeserved mercy, that I can rest in his forgiveness. It's impossible to be a forgiving person until you fully embrace that you are a forgiven person. But forgiveness can release that bitter root. Forgiveness can set us free to live something different. We don't have to live lives where anger is always boiling under the surface. Because of Jesus, you and I can be set free. In just a moment, at all of our locations, we're going to sing a familiar song that's called, I Surrender All. And I want to give you the opportunity, whether you're here in Barrington or whether you're at one of our Willow locations, I want to give you the opportunity to have a moment of surrender with God. And maybe for some of us, we know that that, that angerness, that bitterness, it is, it is very d- deep within our own heart. And maybe this is a moment that you surrender that to God. You release it. You give it to Him. You ask God to do what only God can do in and through your life. Maybe for others of you, You've never embraced the forgiveness that God wants to give you in Jesus. So maybe the very thing that you surrender is your very life to him. A couple weeks at all of our locations, we're going to be experiencing a baptism weekend. Maybe this is a defining moment for your life that you draw a line in in the sand that you say, God, I'm going to give my life to you. I surrender it to you.
And because of that, I recognize that I no longer will experience your wrath because you extend your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness in Jesus. And maybe what you surrender is your very life in this moment.